This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic for today is domestic abuse. It's uh, a complicated topic, uh, a very complex human story topic, if you will. And uh, with me I have Michelle Woody, who is in our counseling department, our newest member of the counseling department. She is a teaching rookie yes, this year. Yes, I am. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and we're really pleased to have her. And I'm going to have Michelle uh, share with us a little bit of her background and why she is qualified to talk about this with us. All righty. Well, thank you very much. Um, yes, I am a rookie, as you said, <laughs> uh, just coming into the counseling department here. I'm excited to be here. Um, I did graduate with a counseling degree from here in 2010. Uh, after leaving in uh, 2010, I was the executive director of a home for boys who had substance abuse issues hmm. um, here in Dallas, uh, in fact, on the South Dallas side, right near Fair Park. And what I found was this was not only a complex issue, but there were a lot of uh, family-related issues, domestic mm. violence being one of the chief problems and challenges that not only the boys had, but their families did as well, mainly single moms. Now, you also were is, – is, do you have a daughter that went to USC, or were you out at USC? What's that – part of the connection. Yes. Uh, in fact, both are true. Okay. <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have a daughter who um, graduated from USC with mm -hmm. her bachelor's in 2009. Okay. Uh, she went away to teach English in South Korea for two and a half years. Oh, wow. She is now currently at USC getting a master's. Okay. And uh, she will graduate this year. And um, I decided after working with these adolescents and trying to work with the school district here uh, in Dallas that I needed more education to really help this at-risk population and mm -hmm. these parents. So I, too, decided to go to USC, and uh, my daughter and I will graduate together this so, year. So, uh, and what did you do at USC? Was that... My degrees in education psychology, okay. and the sole purpose was to work towards helping to motivate those who didn't have an interest in learning. Now, the DISD connection is a, is a new thing that I wasn't aware of before. So what did okay. you do with them? Well, we had, uh, as a part of our residential program, the boys had to work with an in-home teacher that mm -hmm. they had. The problem was the age ranges were 13 to 17, mm. and all the boys were in one room, and this teacher had the task of teaching boys who typically had been truant, had not been to school at all, mm -hmm. and they had to somehow have a curriculum that would meet the needs of all those boys during the 30 days they that they were with us. all different places. All of them yeah. were in different places. So yeah. that was a challenge. So I tried to come up with interventions on my own. I have a lot of experience, just general interest um, with my own children, of course. I have three children who've gone to different types of schools over the years. And so I just came up with things that might help these boys. But 
it wasn't enough to impress the district, and they wanted more credentials, so I uh, I helped them with that. <laughs> so, so that was actually why you pursued the education, is yes. you, were, you were trying to get credentialed to do the DISD work. Yes, so that I could do more counseling interventions with the population that really needed it. Well, now, now that's so fascinating. I don't know whether to pursue that line. Or <laughs> let, let's let's do. Uh, let me let me stay here for just a little while. So you okay. were dealing with. Uh, so you were dealing with basically adolescents, <laughs> and what you were finding was that the substance abuse issue. I'll, I'll, raise, I'll ask it this way: was kind of a compensation for other things that were going on in their life. Would that be a fair fair way to say things? That is an accurate picture of these boys. Um, Students who felt marginalized, Mm -hmm. students who uh, did not have an interest in school, those who moved several times, never were in a stable environment at home or in school Mm -hmm. because there were so many moves either caused by uh, parents, lack of parents in the home, having to be within either a foster care environment or other type environment. They were emotionally drained and unprepared to even socialize with other students in inappropriate ways. And a I, lot of them were in gangs, and it was just difficult. And, and so I take it that any church contact with these families and kids is, is pretty remote because of their family situation, the personal situations which they found themselves in. Interestingly enough, in our particular center that we had, the founder of that center, and she died right before I finished my degree, which is why I did uh, was asked by the board to be the interim executive director. Hmm. Um, she had those boys on Sunday go to our church. Hmm. And um, her view was that if they can just hear a positive word, hear a word from the Lord and just listen and be comforted in that environment that it would help to change their lives. So she, so she was trying to supply something that, generally speaking, they were lacking in their, in their development. Interesting. Yes. yes. Well, that, that does paint an interesting picture. And, and, of course, what this raises is that domestic abuse isn't just about um, husbands and wives. No, it isn't. Uh, it's a much broader topic. Well, let's let's go ahead and, and kind of dive in with that as the background. It's an interesting portrait that you pick uh, that you pictured. Um, let's talk about domestic abuse. So, uh, what is it, and why do you think the church struggles to deal with this area? Okay, domestic abuse basically involves behaviors. Uh, behaviors one person. Uh, making the attempt to control another person. Mm -hmm. And this manifests itself in a number of ways, physically, emotionally, sexually. And the main reason, I believe, why churches are are reluctant to get involved is, number one, uh, they don't want to appear to be judgmental. Mm -hmm. They don't want to appear to um, be involved in a personal or private matter. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to talk about your spiritual development, your spiritual growth. We have most churches, especially in, in Texas and in this region, we can do a lot of things to help that. We have a lot of programs. We have things for the entire family, a one-stop shop mm-hmm. that works. But we don't really know how to help someone develop into being a man or being a woman. And even when we talk about or when the uh, from the pulpit when the messages are, are given about Ephesians 5, what does it take to really be in a right relationship? We don't know how to 
translate that or communicate that effectively one-on-one. So it it just, it requires uh, more time than uh, most churches are either equipped to to handle and the pastor in our mega church environment here especially Mm -hmm. just can't doesn't have the resources or the time to do it. So, uh, so what that means is is that unless there are people who are involved like you are who've decided to, you know, I think this is a calling uh, and a vocation to pursue, and and uh, the institutional church isn't really set up to deal with this very well. So I think I'll go into this area and minister to people who find themselves in this position. It's not going to happen without that, is it? Exactly, yeah. it's not, yeah. and. Uh, the other, the other issue is that most churches, um, while some do have counseling programs, counseling um, staff members, not everyone does. Mm-hmm. And so it's just it's very difficult for people to find the right resources. So we're dealing with various kinds of behaviors where one person can control the other person. I think most people, when they think of domestic abuse, think of it as being almost exclusively physical, someone beating up someone or something like that, but it actually is more broad range than that. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. Um, I've even seen instances, and I'm sure most of the audience has seen the same, even in stores, even if you go in the market where you see um, the male figure or the husband, if you will, walking in front of the wife, and she may even ask, may I put something in the basket? Oh, wow. Um, or you see uh, uh, if something is placed in the basket, if that's not a, an approved item, it's taken out of the basket in a way that state, you know, that makes it clear it shouldn't be there. Hmm. So they're verbal and then they're nonverbal cues that you can see and I've I've seen it all the time and I've tried to make eye contact with that wife if I felt that I you know there was some injustice there just so that there's an encouraging look hmm. um, so it's it, uh, it it's very broad it's not just but it isn't husbands and wives only it can be parents and kids in the way that parenting takes place as well parents kids pets any part of that family or that environment uh, our other complication is that so many of our couples today may not be married. Mm-hmm. There's cohabitation. Mm-hmm. So there are other factors. Um, the uh, single mom who has a boyfriend in the house, the young adolescent uh, young man who hears his mother either being in his view, verbally or physically abused in some way, mm-hmm. there's anger there, there's frustration, there's resentment uh, towards both the mm-hmm. mother and the the other the spouse or that other person. So there are all these things that go on, and so all of this com- uh, makes it complicated for the family because that student doesn't know how to handle it. There's truancy there um, and other issues, not to mention that most uh, the statistics tell us that when we have um, families where there is domestic violence, there's a high probability that those children will also become those who either victimize or perpetrators of violence as adults. That's amazing. I mean, if you think about that, uh, that the, the behavior gets mirrored and passed down. But yes. I mean, you hear similar statistics with things like alcoholism and that yes. kind of thing. So it's not, in one sense, it isn't so surprising. Yes. You mentioned statistics, and I know you brought some. So why don't you tell us what some of the statistics are here? Well, first of all, it's alarming, and uh, I think we need to just preface it with that. But one in four women will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. 
That is a staggering statistic. Mm -hmm. And what it says is, even as we sit in our congregations and as we look around and just being there yesterday, everyone looked great. It was a great day yesterday. Just count. One in four. Mm -hmm. Every, you know, every four people, potentially, there could have been domestic violence. Um, Worse, one in three teenagers, and that's really my sweet spot because Mm -hmm. I work with teenagers, Mm -hmm. one in three teenage girls will be abused by potentially their boyfriend, Mm. someone they know well. That also um, is discouraging. But in addition to that, we know that 1.3 million domestic violence cases are reported every year. So many more go unreported. Yeah, that's the next question. (laughs) And not only that, but at least 85% of those who are victims are women. Hmm. So... um, so it's everywhere. Sir, it's everywhere we turn. And and if we go globally, it probably is even more staggering mm-hmm. than that. Wow. And so most, most of these crimes go unreported. I do know uh, from my own experience with the – with the police that um, I, we had an assignment one. This is a 40-year-old story, but mm-hmm. it's worth telling. Um, we had an assignment for one of our classes at SMU in which we were required to r- ride for one day with a policeman hmm. here in Dallas. Hmm. And uh, on the day that I did, there were a couple of domestic um, incidents involved. And um, what was interesting was to watch the police deal with and in some cases be hesitant to get involved because uh, because of the legal restrictions that exist in terms of their uh, ability to get involved unless there's a formal charge or something like that they just yes. have to that they can be called and come but but if if the person involved doesn't want to really press the matter then they basically have to walk away yes and uh, um, so so there's that dimension of of the unreported or the the desire not to make matters worse, and and another reality that comes sometimes is that when someone does that, they bring in the police, but they don't issue a charge. All they've done is put themselves back in the same environment with the person now angry at them that they even brought it to some form of public attention. Right. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. It's interesting that you say that because Mm -hmm. my dissertation work in uh, Los Angeles was done at two of the 20 detention centers, juvenile detention centers Hmm. in Southern California. Hmm. And it was surprising to me that there were students there, and these are all 
again, 13 to 17 year olds. Mm-hmm. Some had not been in formal school in a formal school environment for more than seven months mm-hmm. in their entire school career. Mm-hmm. Now, I just find that staggering because for most of us, even if our children miss school a day or two, right. the office is calling home to right. see are they sick? What's going on? Right. Uh, is there a note? But they hadn't been in school at all. And what, what I found in doing that research there was that a lot of these environments, the there's a fear that if there's, especially in a low SES or low socioeconomic mm-hmm. uh, environment there, that if there's funding from the government, they don't want to report any type of domestic violence or anything that will draw attention to themselves from the law because they don't want the children taken away from the home. They don't want Child Protective Services to come in Hmm. because anything that um, points to negative type behaviors or an unfit environment means that we're going to lose our income. So it's a complex situation. And Mm -hmm. I, I was I was really Surprise! I, I just wasn't aware of that, and so that's another reason why we don't we don't have um, as much reporting. We have other situations where teenage pregnancy is a more viable alternative than to stay in the house where the 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 student was. Hmm. And so that's another reason or another factor that that plays into this. And so. Uh, I understand. Uh, I understand your story about the police. Um, it's, it's it's complicated. Yeah. So we've got so we've got it everywhere. There's a lot of domestic abuse. We see uh, women and or children controlled by or impacted by. This, this this is one of the things that that I think we don't appreciate is that when there's domestic violence in a home, and there are kids in the home, there's collateral damage. Yes. Yes. Yes, and that no collateral question. damage is severe, and um, we'll be talking about that a little more. So, so we, we're dealing with physical or emotional abuse. It can be intimidation. It can be isolation. Yep. It can be economic abuse. There are just a variety of ways in which this can be uh, dealt with. Okay, let's let's deal with some audiences here. Um, we've said it's there. It's present. Um, it, it's a part of of the lives of some people. Far too many people. Sure. Um, so let's deal with you are a victim. Okay. okay. You are a person in such a situation. What could you do? What should you do? What should you not be afraid of doing, if I can say it that way? Okay. Um, one of the main phrases that I heard over and over and over again I don't want to be a snitch. And if this person, if I tell, they may go to prison for a long time or there may be repercussions from their friends. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's a dynamic that had to be worked through. Mm -hmm. Are you you afraid for what the person will think about you or what the person will do to you? Mm -hmm. And we had to really get through that. But as a victim... The first thing you have to do is just know that it can't be a secret. Mm-hmm. The victim has to make up their mind that there has to be a change mm-hmm. for their well-being. And the only way to bring change is to report. You must report. Hmm. And the hardest thing is to get that victim to report. And the other dynamic psychologically, when there's a blaming that's going on, mm-hmm. when there's an erosion of their own self-esteem, of their own confidence, 
that says to them, I'm, I can't do anything. Hmm. And who will believe me? I've done so many things that are wrong. Hmm. I've made so many mistakes. Hmm. No one's going to believe me. And so part of the whole effort uh, to help the victim is to help the victim believe more in themselves. Okay, so um, I mean, there there are probably a variety of ways that someone can report. Uh, they could call the police. Good. They could tell a friend. Good. Um, uh, they could call some type of. I take it that there are domestic abuse hotlines or something like that 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 where they could seek um, a, a place of refuge. Yes, yes. So uh, have, uh, those are three that come immediately to mind. Am I missing any? They could go to their church. Hmm. If they are church mm-hmm. or if they have a church environment, mm-hmm. they could go to the church. Mm-hmm. Our challenge is do they trust the members of the church and do they have family members there at the church? Hmm. Um, the hotline is a, is a very good one, though, if they don't have friends. Most times when um, – when victims are in this type of environment, if uh, it's almost like a classroom. If you look to your left and your right, we're all in the same boat, or mm-hmm. at least we view ourselves as being in the same boat. Mm-hmm. So they don't think they can receive any help from the friend as much. So you actually have some numbers here uh, that uh, people can call. There's a domestic violence hotline, which is, uh, I guess, 800-799-SAFE, which yes. is 7233. Yes. There's a teen dating abuse hotline. We haven't even talked about that category, really. Um, right. 866-331-9474. Right. Um, there's information on the web, loveisrespect.org, uh, which is another way uh, to get at it. Or you can text at what is love is, which is 22522. So there's a That's variety cool. of ways to make contact with various uh, organizations that are in a position to help you and have I, I take it that if you call a hotline what you can expect is that um, these are services that have trained people in place to help you work through what it is that you're reporting sure the beauty of both of these hotlines these are 24 hours a day seven day a week hotlines mm-hmm. and so you're not going to get um, call me back uh, in the yes, morning. <laughs> or we're, yeah. just, we're never going to be available. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, we're off on the weekends. We're only, you know, yeah. so that's that's helpful. But for even the teen dating hotline mm-hmm. and also their website, it's very user-friendly, which I love for teenagers. Mm-hmm. So they're big prompts. So you can see mm-hmm. what you're trying to get there. Mm-hmm. But also um, I love that you can text because mm-hmm. so many teenagers today in our culture, that's right. they that's don't want to talk on the phone. That's right. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> can, if I can speak through my phone, I will. I will do it. That's right. Yeah, amazing. So, so okay. So, so that's how you report, and then what you expect in, in in reporting, depending on whether you take a legal approach or you take this um, this uh, service approach, is um, getting help. I mean, the the one of the issues that comes up for the victim is. Um, should I stay in the environment or not? Yes, yes. Now, so the other, I think the issue from the outside looking in, it's mm-hmm. easy to say, of course you should leave. Mm-hmm. He's given you a black eye, he's broken your ribs, uh-huh. he's, try, he's threatened to take the children. Yeah. Why wouldn't you leave? Yeah. There may not be any place to go. Yeah. And so many times I saw, um, and really kind of stressful, I saw 
perhaps a mother with five children without knowing any of the fathers. Hmm. Um, and none of the fathers don't know the others for the children, and hmm. they're, not, they're not present in the household. But that mom still has to take care of those kids, has limited skills. What is the alternative if I leave? Mm-hmm. And so that really that becomes a challenge. Because so, in, in her mind, she's not just leaving, but she could be abandoning her children in the same in the same move. Abandoning the children, or just not having a place for them, no alternative mm-hmm. for the five children. Hmm. And a lot of times, um, the other challenge is we've seen um, where where the mother will leave the younger children with whoever is the oldest child, and that oldest could be 10 or 11, and they have to take care of the infant or the toddler while the mother is with either the boyfriend or whomever it is Hmm. um, in another location. Hmm. And she may come occasionally just to check on the children, but that that's how we end up with so many of the younger um, children not going to school. So if you end up in a legal process or you end up in one of these services, then obviously you're going to be involved. You've made a decision to deal with this, but it's going to be a long-term uh, solution. I mean, it, this is not something you fix overnight. Our, um Social services departments across this country are all overwhelmed with the number of cases that they have. Hmm. Occasionally, we will see the outcome of those cases that were missed Mm -hmm. on the news, Hmm. where a child was abandoned, a child was uh, abducted, Mm -hmm. uh, something happened there. Uh, So yes, it's a long-term process, and your case may not even be worthy enough for the social services department in your particular state or local municipality to take because of some of the other cases that are more in crisis than yours. Wow. Well, um, it's clear we're not painting a pretty picture here. It's a a difficult topic. Um, Okay, so that's – we've kind of walked through your victim. Yep. Let's go to the next category. Um, What some victims will do is they'll tell a friend. Yes. So uh, now the question is, if you're a friend who hears about a case of domestic abuse, uh, what advice do you give to the person who hears the report? Okay. Um, The friend, assuming that friend is not one who will say, in the name of the Lord, I will pray for you, Mm -hmm. but then quickly either text another friend Mm -hmm. or calls another friend just to share Mm -hmm. in the name of the church and the name of this victim, Mm -hmm. this is what happened. This is a true friend. That friend, first of all, should not be judgmental. Mm -hmm. The friend should be encouraging. The, The friend should also be a good listener. Sometimes all the victim needs is someone who's going to be sympathetic, someone who's calm, someone who hear them. They want to hear their voice. So mm. many victims can't hear their voice in the midst of, of feeling overwhelmed by their uh, abuser. Hmm. So uh, is there any other responsibility that a friend should feel? When- the friend, um, I think that um, – it's and it's delicate. There's no right or wrong mm-hmm. in that, and it certainly depends on the situation. But the friend has to encourage their friend, the victim, to move in a direction of wanting to make a change. Mm-hmm. And if they do, help them to identify who they can talk to. 
if it's we hope it would be a church, mm-hmm. um, a pastor, um, a pastor that has either resources or access to referrals if they don't have their own counseling center, mm-hmm. but refer them to someone. Uh, legally, if uh, the um, if uh, law enforcement has to be involved, that's always good. However, again, it's very delicate uh, in our in our time um, of limited or no resources for health insurance. Mm-hmm. People are reluctant to go to their hospital or their local doctor because of that. Mm-hmm. And so they, they just start to, to do things that um, most people would not do if they did have those resources available. Yeah, that raises a question because you mentioned doctors. And so um, what, are the, what are the reporting requirements that people have if they come across a situation like this, a doctor, a counselor, uh, um, a pastor, sure. are there are there reporting requirements that come when you have knowledge of something like this? Absolutely, we have to we have to report, mm-hmm. um, and certainly if there are children involved, there we have to report, even if we suspect mm-hmm. that children have been abused. Um, a lot of times, uh, adults will hide the 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 injuries that mm-hmm. they have, but yes, the doctors have to report as well, and so. Again, that's why the the victims are so reluctant to come forward mm-hmm. because they, they they just don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and certain, taking the children away is a real fear that victims have, even when themselves when they themselves are abused. So uh, there's a sense in which I'm I'm hearing between the lines that this is not going forward if a person who's trapped in domestic abuse doesn't take the view of. Things have got to change, and I've got to trust the process here to take care of me. Right. Again, most people are looking at this from the standpoint that they have gotten the short end of the stick in life. Mm -hmm. So they're not that willing to trust that what you're saying, dear friend, Mm -hmm. and I do respect you, that you're going to help me. And I hear the pastor, and I'm sitting in there in in the sanctuary every week, Mm -hmm. but the pastor doesn't know. His wife is beautiful, and it seems to me that he treats his, his children well. Mm-hmm. He's not beating the children, mm-hmm. and he's not beating his wife. How can he relate to me? Mm-hmm. They're just not, they're not hearing it. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Join us next week for part two. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bows Podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.